And now, coming to you live from the grocery room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strahan and Gary K. Wolf with very special guest Ellen Kushner and E. Lily Yu on the Coot Street Podcast! <laughs> oh, and, and drops into a COVID kind of related stupor. Hello, and every- welcome both of you. Hello, Ellen, welcome back to the podcast. It is so great to be back with you all. I've missed you. And Lily, it's so wonderful to see you again. Welcome back. Thank you. I wish it were more joyful circumstances, but I'm glad to be seeing you all. Well, well I I everybody, we all, we've all needed, you know, everybody that I know who loves her books and and or knew knew her is it was just stricken because nobody was <laughs> expecting it. I mean, <laughs> that was part of it. Was like one minute she was there, as like that Richard Thompson song goes, you know, she was there one minute and then she was gone the next. And we were all just in shock and really needed community. And, you know, we sort of all went, oh, no, oh, no, a lot on the Internet. But this is the first time I've really been able to talk to people other than my wife, Delia Sherman. So thank you all for pulling this together. Yeah. Well, thanks. For well, I guess we should actually start. Yeah, uh, by saying to, to to the audience that the reason that we're here together is because we were all shocked and saddened earlier in the week to hear that Patricia McKillop, the uh, world fantasy uh, life life achievement award winning writer, had surprisingly and very very tragically passed away. And uh, I think sort of we're in a situation where Ellen has had a lot of life experience, has known uh, you know, Pat a long time. I know Lily, you've been reading her for a long time she had a real impact on you i've been reading her a long time and was fortunate enough to work with her and you've been reading her work too right gary i started reading i was looking out i remember the forgotten beasts of eld when it came out and i don't know why i read it because i didn't read that kind of fantasy back then this was before i was writing reviews or anything and it uh, it stuck with me when tachyon re, uh, reissued it a few years ago i went back and looked at it again and there's something um I think everybody else had the same reaction, kind of that Ellen described. You don't know where to start talking about this, um, but I, I, I knew her both as a, as a good friend, and her, she and David, kind of got together at ICFA meetings uh, in the beginning before they finally got married in two thousand one. And when I was trying to find things to look at, one of the things I came across was uh, it, it's it's in her collection, Wonders of the Invisible World, was her. Wiscon Guest of Honor speech from 2004, in which she describes driving across the country and trying to set up a household in Oregon with David. And this is nothing but an anecdote. And I was hypnotized reading it. And I was thinking, I want to read the rest of this novel. And then I realized, no, it's just her story of moving across country. Um, that's what I found consistently in, in, in the works that I read was that uh, even if I didn't think I was going to be interested in it, I was hypnotized by the second paragraph. Well, I'll say, Gary, that, um, you know, when Forgotten Beasts of Eld came out, pickings were slim. You know, it was, it was, there wasn't a lot of fantasy and there wasn't a lot of really original gobsmacking fantasy of the, the numinous sort that we were also hungry for after Tolkien and weren't getting very much of. So it just, hit everybody like an atom bomb, but like a very quiet, subtle, like stealth atom bomb. It was really, it just exploded <laughs> in each individual head. Um, it wasn't, I don't think it was the first book of hers that I read, but, but you know, once you read her back in those days, 
when nobody quite knew what fantasy was or was going to be, she just made her mark both as somebody who did something nobody else could do. And, and it's so great to me to hear that Lily feels this way many, many years, like two generations after that book was published, that it was something you needed to know about and that could move you and is inspire you is such a tacky word. But Lily, is it fair to say that? Lily, I mean, I think it's fair to say, Lily, that you probably did not read it when it came out. No, I think that would be impossible. I, <laughs> I started reading Patricia McKillop because I found her books on the library bookshelf, and they had the most incredible covers by Kanuko Wycraft. And then when I started reading them, they had prose that was just as beautiful as the covers. And I was... In middle school, I think that's an age when the books that you love, you love uh, beyond reason. You're not thinking about why you love them. You just know that you do. And it's only it's only in retrospect that I can start talking about the why. Um, I spent a long time trying to write like Patricia McKillop before I realized that was actually impossible. Um, she was writing about magic as seeing what was really there that nobody else noticed magic as learning how to play an instrument really well or learning how to embroider and weave magic as listening as caring about people as being present um not in these great grand powerful epic fantasies where everything is resolved by cutting off the right person's head with a holy sword or you know like <laughs> shooting shooting the right arrow from a 180 degrees into the sky so that it lands uh, straight down and kill somebody uh, at the right moment to make it look like uh, they were divinely struck down or learning the right spell to destroy uh, the right creature. So th those are, there's a very muscular, energetic um, tradition of fantasy that's all about acting on the world to make it into what you want it to be. And McKillop's fantasy is much more about understanding how the world is woven together and where your thread runs throughout all of it and what overlapping you have to do to complete the weave. And sometimes um, it's a much higher picture. It's a much bigger picture than any of the other characters realize is happening. You're always knitted in with history. You're always knitted into patterns that were generations much older than you. Every single book of hers I think I've read, everyone discovers that they're part of a story that began long before they were born. Mm, I Boy, Lily, you're just really moving me, and I wish I were as articulate as you are about books I love. But... I think the, I mean, I'm thinking, well, nobody can really write like her, but I think it's not a matter of whether you've got the chops. It's that she is writing entirely out of her own soul and nobody else has her soul and her life experiences. And I mean, what Gary said about how just reading her description of driving across country was extraordinary. It's that every time she sat down and wrote, it just expressed her absolute self. Um, I'm actually the reason she wrote that Wiscon of oh, really? of Honor speech. Yeah, I, it was very funny um, because it begins, a friend asked me a question and I didn't know what to say. That was probably the year before when we were at a world fantasy and we all went out to lunch together. Well, all meaning my wife and her, was your husband by then, David? And I was sort of making conversation because we were waiting for the food to come and we were all really hungry and cranky. And I said, so Pat, you know, I thought we would beguile the shining hour by talking about what, what made her right. You know, so I said, oh, what, what makes you right? 
And uh, she just stared at me like, why are you even saying that? And so the next year when we were at WizCon and she stood up to make the guest of honor speech and said, a friend asked me this question. I thought, oh shit, that's me. Oh God, please don't let me, don't let me be completely shamed. And of course it was one of the most extraordinary things I've ever heard, but it was also very significant to me that if we're going to talk about what she was like as a person, she wasn't a big talker. Well, no, she wasn't. Yeah. And, uh, I know, Willie, you had met her at least at once at ICFA. She'd been at several ICFAs, and you've been at several. I don't know how much I may have dragged twenty the 20 McKillop books I had up to her signing table, <laughs> dumped them all, and said, would you please sign these for me, and then run off. Um, <laughs> she she seemed to be one of the people, the folks, the writers who show up at ICFA for um, rest and recuperation and just serenity. Mm. And I... I couldn't. I couldn't bear to walk over to where she was sitting at the end of the end, end of the dock and break that. Oh, you, she, you know, she was. She was shy. She was super shy, mm -hmm. and not. When I say not a talker, I don't just mean that. You know, she did not like to waste time in idle conversation. But that when you tried to converse with her, there would be a long pause, and she'd really be thinking about it. She never wanted to be on panels. She. No. But then, you know, I asked this idiotic question at a lunch once, and, you know. 12 months later or whatever it was, comes this exquisite essay talking about her writing. So that was really where her power lay. It was almost like if you want to go into one of her books, she invested all her power in in the written word. Well, there's a... Well, I was going to ask this. I mean, uh, Pat, Pat's first book came out nearly 50 years ago in 1973. That was The House on Parchment Street. Um, Oh, and right. all of her books were published out of New York. And I'm kind of curious. Uh, do you remember when you first encountered her, Ellen? As a person or as a writer? Either. Well, either. Well, I certainly remember meeting her as a person. I also have a very funny um, uh, autographing story about her. Don't let me forget it. But it's weird that I'm not sure which book of hers I read first. I must have read something, and maybe I did read The Forgotten Beasts, but I have the most vivid memory of my first summer out of college looking for a job and just not knowing who I was or what my life was going to be and being unable to find work because I was overqualified for the things that I could do, and uh, my typing was too slow to get into publishing, although I did eventually. and just being in this bizarre liminal space that you're in at that point in your life. And I had this awful, like cheap apartment in a bad neighborhood in New York, but it was around the corner from the library, from a branch of the New York Public Library on West 81st in Amsterdam. And I went to the library one day and it was kind of lowering and it was gray and it was, it was going to rain. And there was the first of the Hart books um, whose name has suddenly left the building um, the the Riddle Master of Head. Surfing, there was the yeah. Riddle Master of Head, and I and I thought, and I must have known her, or maybe I just liked the cover. But I took it home, and I remember just sitting in this ratty old chaise long we had alone in the apartment because my roommate had a job, and just being almost in the dark because of the gray rain and because we didn't have very good windows, and just reading it, and thinking, this this is it. This is significant this is has meaning to me in a way that very few things have ever had before 
And just having, it, it didn't result in anything really, but it was giving me that extraordinary experience. So when I did get a job in publishing, I worked it for all I was worth to, to get to meet people that I admired. Mm. Um, I mean, you, you, the nice thing about having a, a, a job in publishing is you're 22, you've never done anything in your life, but suddenly you're like, hello, I'm Ellen Kushner from <laughs> Ace Books or Pocket Books, and you've got somebody you can be. So you don't, you can't be shy because your job is not to be shy. So I was going to San Francisco. We must have corresponded a little bit because I said, can I see you or meet you? Or maybe we had met at a con or something, but somehow I got invited to overnight at her house in San Francisco at the time. And we just, we did talk. I mean, I probably did more of the talking, but, but, but that was the time that I really got to connect with her and was just felt like it was such an honor, but also that there was somebody very hidden that she just, you know, was not going to suddenly sit there and start bouncing up and down the way that I do. Um, I also knew that she played the piano. She was a classical pianist hmm. and I asked her to play for me. And I think she did. I think she did. It was this little apartment in an old building, which was very romantic to me. And just being in those rooms with her and realizing like, oh my goodness, this is my life. I'm talking to this extraordinary human being, extraordinary writer. It's just, it's just magical. Well, there, there's a connection that I have thought about between uh, talking to her and, and as, as, as Lily certainly noticed when she shows up at ICFA, a lot of the time she'd be there for days and other young writers wouldn't even know she was there. She wouldn't introduce herself. She didn't like to be on panels. But when you had a, a, a dinner with her or lunch with her, um, she could be, uh, she could be very funny actually, and she could be very acerbic at times. And she was always in, quietly insightful, but never somebody who would interrupt the conversation. I, uh, I think just in the last day or so, I saw on Facebook. I think Jeff Ford said something about having drinks with her, and he was ordering another drink, and she said, "No, Jeff, you're going to go in and eat dinner now." And that's exactly the kind of thing she did. There was a kind of quiet strength and power and humor to her. And I think that in some ways is echoed in the fiction in what you see at the surface of the fiction and then uh, what you see undergirding that. And that includes something that has always bothered me about the reputations of fantasy writers who are recognized for being beautiful, lyrical writers whose mastery of the sentences is, is so uh, overwhelming, that there's an assumption that these people don't have um, an acerbic bone in their body, that they don't have a sense of humor. And, well, Jonathan, going back to the story she wrote for you, for your, your collection, Under My Hat, which was mm -hmm. called, which, which, it's a very funny story. It's about a, yeah. a, 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 a cover band of witches or something. Um, yeah. and, and, and this sort of thing shows up uh, more frequently than you'd expect. I was looking at some of her short fiction. It may show up more in the short fiction than the novels. But that unassuming exterior with this kind of uh, acerbic, sharp uh, substructure is there both in it, was there both in her and I think is there in her fiction. Definitely. And I think that's, that's one thing that keeps it from being what we call woo-woo. You know, it is, it is exquisite and transcendent and numinous, and yet it's always grounded 
it's always grounded and rooted in whatever reality she wants you to to be in. Um, you know, it's not flying around in the clouds at all. No. And it's interesting that, you know, the kind of thing she wrote changed over time. I mean, she started off writing basically what young adult and children's books with, you know, uh, you know, at the very, very beginning, I think, if, if I recall correctly. Then she goes and she, she does, you know, the Riddle Master of Head trilogy, which I think is the only trilogy that she wrote in her in her whole career and which was uh, very much a Tolkien influence thing in, in the back of it. I mean, I've seen her talking about how she'd really read almost no other fantasy herself before then. She hadn't come across the Lynn Carter series of reprints or anything like that. So it was all very much, you know, classic Tolkien kind of influence, even though it's not a very Tolkien-esque series, because that's the thing that I first encountered uh, of hers. Even though it's it, like, it's interesting. I remember reading the um, Riddle Master of Head trilogy and loving it, but probably like Lily, um, the point where I fell deeply in love with her work was in, well, it was actually in the mid nineties. I mean, I don't know whether Lily and I counted around the same time, but it was in the mid nineties when someone at Ace Books decided to marry her up with Kanuko Craft. And they did the, this series of extraordinarily, first of all, beautiful, small format, not many books, standalone novels, each and every one, I think. Um, that you know, starting with the book of Atrix Wolf in 1995, and going on, you know, on for what another decade, nearly until I think probably is around the Bell at Sealy Head in 2008 was probably the last of the ones with a cover from um, from Craft, and they changed. But but the books were lovely, and I think the only sequel that that, that time, and I realize now um, looking <clears throat> back at her career, the only book that I didn't actually read. It was the sequel to uh, Winter Rose, which was a book I, I loved. I hadn't even particularly connected that Solstice Wood was its sequel. But, you know, I'm also struck that, I mean, we've talked about being quiet. I mean, I've always tried to reconcile. On one hand, Charles Brown years ago told me a story that I can no longer verify because it's too long ago and my memory's awful, that apparently she was a terrifying driver and that driving around the, the Berkeley Hills was some of the most terrifying life experiences he'd ever had with her. And that she was known to be terrifying to be in a car with. On the other hand, I mean, she was, as you say, so quiet that I, mean, I published two stories of hers, which, which back in, um, you know, back in the day, and then Camouflage in the Book of Dragons, which I think is the final thing uh, that, that's come out from her to this point. Um, and I met her. I must have met her half a dozen times because we had dinner uh, with our, we were the same literary agent, and so we'd have dinner at World Fantasy uh, every time. And I don't think we exchanged two words. I chatted a couple of times with David Lund, the poet, his, her, her husband, but I certainly didn't really get to talk to her very much. She, but she always seemed, how would I put it, happily engaged with the whole experience around her whilst not necessarily really diving into it. And I, I got this impression that she was somebody who, I don't know, she'd found the story she wanted to tell, the life she wanted to live. She'd married David, she'd moved somewhere fairly sort of quiet, and I suspect semi-rural would be what I would imagine, where she wrote these gorgeous, beautiful books. I mean, and even if they'd been physically horrible books, which they weren't, the stories were engaging. And I remember, and I've been trying to uh, really push myself to remember, the books are actually sometimes very structurally clever, which wasn't something anybody really talked about very much. 
You know, they, these okay. were like really, really, I mean, she was a very smart writer. I mean, you can see why she would get a life achievement award. And in fact, one of the interesting things for me is that the, the World Fantasy Awards recognized her and her work, when often what they tend to recognize is horror and horror-related work. She really was a, one of the more remarkable fantasists of our time. And if there's anything that's kind of, you know, there's two things that are very sad. First of all, that, that, that Pat has died, but also that you know, a bunch of this, this work is sort of, if you're looking for physical paper books, falling out of print, which is, is, is very sad. So I, as Little Bird told me that um, Tachyon Books, which reissued The Forgotten Beasts of Eld, was, even before this week, um, looking at reissuing others of hers. And my mm -hmm. fingers are crossed that they're successful because they, they should be out there. I would also add that she was extremely well known as a fantasist, but she was also an extraordinary science fiction writer. Um, I found Fool's Run, one of the most astounding uh, works of science fiction that I, I had read. Um, and I, I'm going through um, Moonflash and the Moon and the, Fa and, and the Face right now, uh, which, are, which are science fiction. And she has, she has a touch that you don't normally see. Um, it, it's very grounded. It's extremely tactile in a way that a lot of her fantasy isn't. Um, and it's just, it's something else altogether. But to, to what you were saying about structure, I, I spent so much, so many um, years when I was an adolescent trying to figure out how she managed to weave this one completely uh, enveloping dream that you you entered into it and you did not leave until she let you. I couldn't I figure out how to do that for the longest time. It was sort of intuitive. This is that thing about what I was saying before. I can't remember if it's in her essay or whether it's just something she talked about with me once. Gary, you just reread the the the. The, the speech, I think, so you know, but but she said it just she just kind of wrote until it was over, you know. She she had that in her brain and in her body. Her which last is another part, reason it's hard to recreate. Well, the, apparently she was just in the uh, finishing a series of novels uh, because the whole story is about moving to Oregon in two thousand one with a deadline of January two thousand two or something, which is something I suppose any would terrify any writer. Um, but uh, she said uh, at the very end of the essay, each work, it, well, let me read the last sentence of the essay, the last couple of sentences. What I set out to do about 15 years ago was write a series of novels that were like paintings in a gallery by the same artist. Each work is different, but they are all related to one another by two things. They're all fantasy and they're all by the same person. That's all I wanted to do. And now I'm reaching the end of that series. I have no idea what will come next. I believe. Go ahead. I saw an interview say the same thing. You know uh, that that very much. You know, she she had found fantasies. But I mean, you talk about Fool's Run, which is a really sort of interesting, curious book, and in many ways stands out from her bibliography as being somewhat unlike everything else she did. Um, and I remember it because it came out with a rather strikingly odd Michael Whalen cover on it, as I recall. Um, I'm pretty sure that's it, that he did it, and it was a very odd book, but. Um, it really was in keeping with what you're talking about. And she talks about you know, this in interviews, you know. Um, it, I'm also struck, I mean, when I was talking about, about structure, the book that comes to my mind is Kingfisher, the fi her final published novel, which was a book we did a podcast about years ago when it was just when it was, when it was new. And what I remember about it is it's this book that I recall as having this sort of spiraling plot 
for a book that I hated until the very last page when I fell in love with it because it made the whole book make sense. And I don't know if she had meticulously plotted this thing to make it work or whether it evolved spontaneously, but for an Athurian Grail Quest type story, it was one of the more remarkable things that, I've, that I'd read, certainly back then in 2016. And, you know, it's a book that stayed with me ever since, you know. Well, this may be part of the... Uh, part of what Lily was saying about her science fiction, that uh, Kingfisher was, it, it's a Percival story. It's a variation on Percival. But it's also about cooking and restaurants and that sort of thing. And she worked out the cooking. That's the sort of thing that kind of impresses me. You can actually see how this restaurant works and how the recipes work. In other words, she had thought through a fantasy premise the way a science fiction writer would. Uh, she wanted to work out the details. She wanted to know... Uh, to go back to Sturgeon's famous ask the next question, that's what she was doing. So once she had this set up, um, she was, yeah, she was not going to let go of the myth. Uh, the myth was hovering above the whole thing, but she wasn't going to ignore the realities of how to cook a meal either. I mean, I think that's typical of all her work, don't you? Yeah, I guess so. Well, I think in some ways we still haven't caught up to her, her futuristic imaginings. Like, her use of, uh, a, I think it was a box sonata as a password phrase, uh, where you have to be able to play it into a keyboard, yes, remains right. mm -hmm. possibly the most secure password I, I have ever seen designed in science fiction. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, I mean, I, but I, what, I, what I remember uh, with Fool's Run was that it was... A, quite it was so unlike the books of the time even though it was also a book that was rooted in music so obviously music in her fiction plays through through book after book after book in a way that ends up being critical and important and reflective of what she was doing yeah you've got the, the harps in um in Rhythm master as well i mean she was a musician as well i um there was a period where she didn't live in san francisco you know she'd come from there but she'd gone east and it was about the time I left New York and lived in Boston and started working in radio. And we communicated a lot then because we were both sort of looking for love. And I think she'd maybe moved east to be with somebody or, 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 or to live in a town where her friend lived because, you know, she just wanted to be near people she knew. There was some reason. And if I, I never throw anything out. So somewhere in my boxes, there are letters where we're talking about all of this. And, um, then uh, a few years later, I remember um, going to World Fantasy or, no, it wouldn't have been ICFA, it would have been World Fantasy, which she also went to regularly, and being introduced to uh, this man that she had met who was a uh, professor in upstate New York, I guess, Stony somewhere Brooklyn, in New York. So. Was it? It was David Lundy, anyway. He was a poet and yeah. a professor at university, and they were getting increasingly serious, and then... Uh, a year or two later, they, they, I mean, we, Delia and I were close to them, you know, by then I had gotten together with my partner, Delia Sherman, and we were close to them annually, you know, um, when she's, when she had sort of sorted herself out and found David, you know, we didn't exchange agonized letters a lot, but um, every year we would, we would meet up and sort of do a state of the union thing. And when she said she and David were engaged, we were ecstatic and they had to wait till he retired. Uh, and then they were going to move together across country, which is uh, because they wanted to be in the Pacific Northwest. And I think that's, Gary, the, the thing that you're describing. Yeah, you just reminded me of another bizarre and utterly meaningless anecdote. Uh, David <laughs> had, 
at Sunday Fredonia. And we, we, a lot of us met David at the same time because you're right, they would go to World Fantasy to go to Hickville. And when we first realized that they were getting together and that didn't impress everybody, it impressed everybody that David taught at a place called Fredonia. So we all started singing Fredonia Rules the Waves from the Marx Brothers movie, uh, which she knew the lyrics to it. So she knew the Marx Brothers, which impressed me a lot at the time. But there's some, um, uh, oh, go ahead, uh, Lily. If, if we're telling funny stories, <laughs> she was terrifically modest. I mean, genuinely modest and humble. Um, always faintly surprised that people liked and understood her work. And I remember the time that I worked with her was when, so she had had the good fortune to be one of the people that Terry Windling was edited at Ace Books. In fact, it's possible, Ace Berkeley, it's possible she went there from her, um, from her other publisher, which was, had been Athenaeum, which was children's books in those days, although now everything has changed. Anyway, so Terry was, you know, encouraging her and getting her to experiment a little bit. And talking about her life, she wrote one non-semi-autobiographical, not particularly fantastical book, I think, called Stepping from the Shadows. Has it, Have you read that? And it nothing happened with it. I, I mean, it was very disappointing because it was her attempt, very much encouraged by Terry, who always liked to see people trying new and different things uh, to do something she hadn't done yet. And it's an exquisite book, but it didn't grab people because they were looking for another Patricia McKillop fantasy, but it does exist. And uh, it's it's very much worth reading. I placed but, an interlibrary loan request earlier today for that. Oh, good. And, and then she went back and you know wrote more spectacular fantasy. I don't. I wish I knew who started the Canuco Craft covers. It might have been Terry, or it might not. I, I really don't know. Uh, I can ask her. But um, just to to go back to uh, the the autograph story, mm. back when I was still a bouncy young editor and very full of the fact that it gave you entree to just about everything, um, I saw her at a World Fantasy, standing in a spectacularly long line to get. Isaac Asimov's autograph on a little pile of books that she had. Mm-hmm. And I bounced up to her and said, Pat, you don't have to stand on line. She's like, no, no, I, I, I feel I should. I'm like, no, 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 you're, 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 come on, you're, you're one of us. Come on, you just go up there. Because it was terrifically long line. And she said no, that, that she was fine. So we ended up standing in line together and talking. But I just remember, because it was so clear in those days, you know, what the, what the hierarchy was and who mm-hmm. had to stand in line and who didn't. And, uh, she wasn't having it. <laughs> and I think it's, she didn't feel like, I mean, it wasn't that she thought it was the wrong thing to do. It just wouldn't have occurred to her. So did you actually work with her, Ellen? You mentioned something, something about about being around at the same time. What did you work with her on? Ah, this was quite late. Um, I got distracted. So she, Terry Windling loved her personally and as a writer and got her to write a little bit for Terry's Border Town um, series of the shared world that Terry invented, the elves on motorbikes, as we called it. Um, and so when Holly Black and I wanted to do the Next Generation Border Town anthology, which Terry blessed but did not, you know, officially edit, um, Pat was one of the people that we went to. And she wasn't going to be able to write us a story, but she really wanted to participate. So she wrote this just exquisite little sort of ballad poem version of uh, The Two Sisters. It's absolutely gorgeous. 
And she was, again, she sort of proffered it, it to us and said, well, I, I hope this is all right. And um, it was. <laughs> well, Lily, as somebody who um, came into this as a reader more than anything else, I'm going to ask you the difficult question, which everybody is going to get asked. If somebody hasn't read any Patricia McKillop, where should they start? I think that's a question that depends on the reader. If they are heavily into science fiction, I think Fool's Run would be a very rewarding entrance. Um, if they don't have much time, um, actually, the, the Changeling Sea, which was billed as YA and republished by uh, Firebird Books, um, 2003 or so, I don't remember. It's a very short novel that I think has the best of what I would consider her style. Um, and it's a very fast way of telling, I think, if you'd be open to the bigger jumps. Um, and after that, um, maybe Song for the Basilisk or the Book of Atrix Wolf, I think, might be the most accessible at this point in time for folks who are um, ready to jump into the deep end of her fantasy. That's interesting because, I mean, her most famous work probably is The Riddle Master of Head, but you wouldn't think that's where you would start? No, I, I actually I actually would not. I think um, it's different now than it was in, in the 1970s. Um, I, I don't know that what makes her work spectacular and lovely that uh, would be apparent on first sight going into the Riddle Master um, trilogy right now, simply because of how many, how much noise, how many books have come um, <laughs> through in, in the meantime, if that makes sense. Uh, and But something, something else that I was thinking about and I've been having conversations with friends about is how deeply and widely she read and how clear that was um, in her in her books, if you read the Throne of the Errol of Cheryl, you know that she, you know that she understands Middle English. If you read um, the Tower at Stony Wood, you know that she reads Tennyson. Um, there's just a lot of there's just a lot of um, references to to much older uh, English literature, which I think, given that the the overall impression the painterly impression that you're talking about earlier of a lot of her prose is like that of the Breton Lays where nothing is explained. You just have to accept the fantasy that is offered to you. Um, Which is so out of fashion in today's fantasy. I, I mean, don't you think? I just read um, an interview with a Stanford professor in the Authors Guild's bulletin for the most recent quarter um, in which he, he said that making the reader work for her enjoyment is considered unspeakable these days and completely out of fashion. And yeah, one of the things about McKillop is that you, you have to participate. You have to participate as a reader when you're reading her work. You can't just consume it like um, a thoughtless piece of, you know, factory made junk food. You it's have to be television. fully present. Yeah, no, it's but, not. But but she engages. I mean, I always worry when we talk about that, that people don't understand. It's not hard. It's like you have to no. give yourself to her. And she will take, which is what you were saying before, Lily, and she will take you where you need to be and you will love it. But it, you you have she's to not going to explain everything to you. But it's you not have to surrender. You have to surrender to a psychopomp in order to go into the underworld. 
Hmm. There you go. But there's also, (laughs) I think another part of what you're saying, Lily, is there's always, this is invoking Gene Wolfe, which is probably out of left field, but there's always a door that remains closed. There's always some part of the narrative which is secret, which is not revealed, which is uh, which is there, and which is com- completely up to the reader to imagine or not imagine what might be there. One story of hers that's a, it's a minor story. It was in her collection, Wonders of the Invisible World, no, the other one. Um, it's called Weird. I don't know if anybody remembers this, but it's almost a postmodern uh, literary experimental story that describes two people cowering in the bathroom of a hotel room. And they're surviving on snacks that they managed to get out of the minibar. And there's some kind of apocalyptic thing going on outside the room. Which we're never told what it is. And somebody is pounding on the door of the bathroom and shouting at them in a language which they don't understand. The story unfolds the relationship of the characters. We learn a lot about them. And at the end of the story, she never opens that door. You don't know what's going on outside. It's, it's, it's almost Kafka-esque. It's not like most of her fiction at all. But it's masterful in the way it, in, in what it doesn't tell you. It's masterful in what it refuses to tell you, I should say. I think the terms of engagement have changed over the years. I think Patricia McKillop is, is offering you a, a, a fabulous banquet of incredibly rich and wonderful food if only you will set the table and light the fire mm. and sit down mm. to it. And, and that's, that's an invitation that I think um, readers used to be open to, willing to participate in. Uh, and there, there's almost a, a loss of that today where we expect everything to be done for us. Um, where if everything is not handled before we get there, if, if we are not allowed to sit back and, and do nothing, um, the book is rejected outright. And I, I think that's a, it's not everybody. It's certainly not the way I think any of you read, but I, I am seeing that I am reading more and more fiction that acts like that, where I do not participate very much at all, where very little is asked of me. And I'm sorry to see it. I can't read it. So I, I, I mean, if I can't play too, I actually don't enjoy the reading. Um, and I cheer myself up um, Lily by saying, you know, look, what was a bestseller in 1923? They're all books you've never heard of. The great ones last. And I really strongly feel that she was truly great. And that those are the books that will last, that will be rediscovered. Like Bach, who was practically forgotten. He was an old-fashioned guy in the 18th century. Nobody was particularly interested. And then Felix Mendelssohn kind of rediscovered Bach. And suddenly he became stylish again and people recognized the master. So... Uh, taking the very long view, I I really really hope and pray that that she will be discovered and rediscovered for her exceptional extraordinary virtues. It does make me crazy that somebody like her was continuing to put out novels and they weren't even nominated for awards, even though I'm sure they were ten times better than than most of the things that were getting all the attention. I, I, what up with that? Well, we all kind of know, but it but it really it distresses me. I wonder if I think. Oh, go ahead. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead, Gary. Uh, I, I was I was I was going to ask if this is what authors think they should be writing, or if editors and publicists are pushing them in this direction. I mean, 
would it be possible? I, mean, I, was, I was looking at The Forgotten Beasts of Aldegan, which is, you know, for, for such an early novel, early in a career, it's, it's, it's masterfully done. It's like, how is this person a new writer? And I kept thinking, would somebody be telling her to make this a 700-page novel if she were submitting it today? It depends. I mean, I've seen it go both ways. It's well, my, my, it really my, my sense is a good editor would know something when they've got it. But that's really it, Lily. What do you think? I think there are lots and lots of fantastic editors with brilliant taste, and they are losing power, and they don't always get to make the right call. Uh, I, I think part of my grief around losing McCaleb is not my worry that she'll be forgotten. I have no, I, like Ellen, I have complete faith yeah. that her work will live on. But there's a sense of a certain door closing, of a certain um, means of existing in the world as a writer and creator. Part of what was wonderful, um, I think, is the depth and the quietness that the the quietness and the depth that that quietness quietness enabled, where. She didn't have to be on panels. She didn't have to be in the public eye. She didn't have to be fully involved in the chaotic, noisy, distracting um, world. And she could simply focus on writing. It feels like we have lost, along with Patricia McKillop, that possibility of existence. And I suspect with it, the ability to write in the way that she has. Um, I will say my publisher has been very, very patient with me about my uh, desire to not exist online. Uh -huh. And I do not know that very many other publishers in the increasingly consolidated market-driven um, world would be nearly as patient. But I would say that her publisher paid the price. That that is one reason why these extraordinary books came out and, and people didn't pay attention. And the publisher was willing to tolerate that because it was Patricia fucking McKillop and you know they they were loyal to her but I'm sure they didn't make her make a lot of money and part of it was that people didn't know who she was because she know. wasn't really I don't know that I'm entirely convinced that people had stopped paying attention to her I mean consider this up until 2016 2017 she was still publishing with a major New York publisher right because I, that I publisher was super loyal yeah yeah, I mean, I also people don't know. paid attention. We all paid attention. But yeah. she wasn't a name that you could drop to just anybody. Forgive me, John. Oh, no, no, no that, that's, that's right. You start, certainly, if you're, if you're going out amongst the normal citizenry, as it were, and you were going to say, have you heard of? No, they would not have heard of Patricia McKillop. But if you're within the genre at all, the odds were pretty solid that somebody would have. And I mean, one of the measures that I use, and it may be a very insider measure, is where do your books end up on the Locus Awards poll, which is the only long-term measure of popularity we have, really, that goes beyond mm -hmm. the top couple of books? And where in that ranking, because sometimes they're linking, they're listing 20, the top 20 or 30, say, fantasy novels of the year. Where do, do they appear? <clears throat> and in those years where Pat McKillop had a book out, she almost always had it on one of those lists and almost always had it at the upper echelon of those lists. So... The, the readers within the field were paying attention. Now, what I'm tempted to suggest is that, first of all, Pat is, Pat's career at this point is very much a victim of the death of the Midlist, which has happened over the last 30 or 40 years. And then also is probably somewhat, you know, oh, a victim of not wanting to write serial 
work all the time you know i mean mm -hmm. she had moved away from writing series a long time ago and had shown no great interest from what we can see in what she published in in writing more uh i i, I think that's the thing i mean we talk about do we think she'll she be remembered i think she'll be remembered forever well within the field at least because whether or not the riddle master of head is her uh best work it is the anchor work on which people will find her. it is consistently popular and if you have an anchor work, this is my a personal theory of mine, the, the writers whose careers get lost don't have an anchor work. Fritz hmm. Leiber, half of his, his career is out of print. But as long as Pfeffer the Grey Mouser exists, he will he will be remembered and will, will stay in print. As long as Roger Zelazny has Amber hmm. as an anchor work to be remembered around, he will be remembered as, as long as the, the field continues to some degree. And I think with, with uh, Pat McKillop, it'll be to what extent people can, uh, publishers can find homes for these other books. I mean, Lily, you mentioned that it's possible that uh, Tachyon may reprint more of her novels. And I desperately hope they do. I mean, I think most of them are available if you read digitally. But one of the things, and I was reading an article about it just recently, that has been the great lie of the modern era has been you know, the impact of the long tail and how the long tail would make everything constantly available forever. But what it really ended up giving us was an, a large amount of undiscoverable work. I mean, if you go to mm. digital publishers, right, or digital retailers, you can get, I think, just about everything as though it were in print. But if you go into a bookstore and try and find a book, my guess is you'll find the omnibus edition of the Riddle Master of Head trilogy everywhere and nothing else. So, you know, I, I really do hope that Tachyon do anything. What are you going to say? Like? But now we can get all the used books we want. It's you don't have yeah. to wander the earth, you know, walking up and down in it, looking in used bookstores. You just hit a button, and ninety nine percent of the time, you can get you know your three ninety nine copy of an old Patricia McKillop book. It's wonderful. But that's well, also the problem that I'm talking about because it's how do readers today find things? Well, when I found books, like when I found uh, Wizard of Earthsea, it wasn't in a library. It wasn't someone mentioning it to me. It's I took my pocket money into a children's bookstore and went through a rack and found the book. You know, yeah. you want books in bookstores. They still can't, I mean, it's still the largest amount of stuff that's sold. That, you know, that, that we sell more print books than we sell eBooks or audio books. So to the extent that you don't get your book in the bookstore, that's the problem. This is why specialists are so critical in this era. You know, smart, independent book publishers, book sellers, and and uh, specialists, because they're where you will find not just the Riddle Master of Head, but hopefully, you know, the so Song of Etrick's Wolf, uh, Winter Rose, Kingfisher, these other books. Uh, I mean, probably looking at it, what I think would be the greatest service that Tachyon could do would be to produce a, <clears throat> I mean, an omnibus of the first two or three novels, which are largely unavailable. You know, because that would be be really welcome. And then to see what else. I mean, I was suggesting someone that, first of all, someone should do a omnibus of some of the Ace novels, since I think they're not mm. physically in print. And then I think of collected stories. I mean, there's four collections that exist, but there's enough for one really meaty collected stories. And I think that would be a beautiful thing because the short work, I mean, one of the things that's really, I personally think that, that one of the hardest things to do is to write a fantasy short story that is like a fantasy novel. Yes. A lot of the fantasy short stories you read, read nothing like fantasy novels that you'll read. McKillop reads the same way at short length as she does at, mm -hmm. at, at novel length. If you read A Troll and Two Roses, 
If you read Baba Yaga and the Sorcerer's Son, if you read the Winches of Junket, um, if you read the Gorgon of the Cupboard, you're going to encounter what you'll encounter when you read her novels. And I can think of a handful of other writers who did that. So that is is, is a, a remarkable thing and a great thing. And it's, again, it's why I think she may well uh, be remembered, I mean, for a long, long time. I think she'll be remembered. Is it maybe that, oh, she's dead now, let's all read her thing that has happened with just about every woman who's uh, strode the, the world in the last 50 years. Uh, can I, Can will you tell me a story, Jonathan? Like, tell me about what it was like to be her editor or to ask for stories from her. <laughs> I can tell you that it was very easy. And in fact, because she was a quiet person, she was a quiet person to interact with. You know, I mean, I th my, my recollections of editing Which Witch were, she sent me a story, it was delightful, I had a few very minor comments and that was it. With Camouflage, which is the dragon story, which is a really kind of, I don't know if you've read it, but it's a really strange and interesting story to put forward for a, a, a dragon book. We did go back and forth a few times, and she was always very open, receptive, easy to deal with, but very low-key, quiet as well. Not someone who was going to be in your face. I mean, one of the first things I did when I heard was just look and go, how long is it since I'd heard from her? It'd been a year or so, so I do wonder how she'd been. But she, she was a delight. And the book, what was great was she would give you the Patricia McKillop story that you didn't know you wanted and weren't expecting. But once you got it new, it was exactly the story that should have been the Patricia McKillop story you got, which is, which, which is what you hope when, when you're dealing with. And that ties into what you're saying earlier, uh, uh, Ellen and Lily, that, you know, readers who are doing a bit more work, who are responding to the work, get more out of them. And that was embedded in this, you know, I'll, I'll always come back to years ago hearing Howard Waldrop say that he expected his readers to do 50% of the work. He'd do the first half and they had to do the second half. And if you weren't willing to come halfway, then his work wasn't for you. Now, I don't think that McKillop made her readers work quite as hard because uh, Waldrop often turns in some very abstract and esoteric information, but she did want you to engage and to think her, her books were never how do I have this? They were never as rewarding as they could have been if all you did was just flick the pages. But they brought you in as well. They're they're beguiling works, I think. You know, they are seductive works in that sense. They seduce. They pull the reader in. They give you a very little bit. You don't really know know that you're going to be that interested. And then suddenly you're lost in them and, and completely surrounded by them. Yeah. May I? Um leave the the, uh, the floor to Lily and uh, the two of you now. I For one thing, she'll get a word in edgewise, but for another, I, I should probably go. Thank you go, so go much. Go finish your packing. I am not feeling sorry for you having to go to Paris yes. at all. But Nor should you. <laughs> I understand that it's, it's well, tomorrow and you do that, so. Well, well because actually, I... We're almost done, though. We almost have about five minutes. Yeah, I think we're at, we're, we're at the end, and also, yeah. Um, I do want to make one more point, based partly on what we're talking about with reputations, and uh, and, and you mentioned Bach, and we could Herman Melville's another example. He was just in the nineteen twenties. People are even people who don't know Patricia McKillop's work know people who do know Patricia McKillop's work, and I'm. I, it's one of the things that fascinates me about younger generations of writers, and Lily is probably tired of my expressing my absolute fascination with how she discovered George MacDonald. Uh, but 
people who read modern fantasy are reading people who read people who read people who read George MacDonald. I don't know if anybody reads Andre Norton today, but anybody writing any kind of space opera today is reading people who read Andre Norton. And I suspect that Patricia McKillop, apart from uh, the, the, the works themselves staying in print and continue, I think that she will be one of those generational influences where everybody, um, who a lot of people who don't know Patricia McKillop will discover that the authors they admire were fans of Patricia McKillop. Mm -hmm. Neil Gaiman is so good at bringing all the books he loved yeah. um, into his own work, as well as his talking about it and all of that. And uh, he just won't let people forget that, that those other authors were there. It's one of the things I love about him. Yeah. Just, just thinking about what um, Jonathan said a moment ago, I think one of the keys to falling into her work, to be, to, to, to to being able to surrender to her work is you have to love language. You have to. If you're not, if you don't love language, if you don't pay attention to words, I think she remains uh, opaque and impenetrable. And I think I'm, I'm just thinking about how much of an ask that is these days when we're watching words be redefined and broken and bent in ways that they never should have been. Uh, it's 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 Orwell's Politics in the English Language, but like. Uh, with the full gas tank and the accelerator down, um, I, I think I think Orwell would be flipping in his grave. I, I people are so careless about words and their meanings and language um, these days that it's 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 tough to imagine the almost a holy remnant of people who still believe that words mean things and are beautiful and should be revered. Um, that those are I think those are the people who would love Patricia McKillop mm -hmm. as well. Um, and I, I hope, I, I just hope they are not disappearing. Well, there's a way in which the language is music. Yeah. And that's always been true. I mean, there were people writing kachunk, kachunk kind of fiction when she was a kid and when she was first being known. There are people who, who, who care about music in their fiction and there are people who really don't. And mm -hmm. if there's enough space in the world for both of them, Lily, thank you for saying that. It's absolutely true. If, if, if you want music, she is the person to go to. That's a good note to end. Oh, I, I'm sorry I said that. It's a good note to end. Yeah, on. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not sorry. I mean, the thing I'd say is to mildly sort of almost disagree with something that Ellen said about how it's a pity that it takes something like this to get people to go and read the work of somebody who's maybe fallen from the the, the main spotlight of the field. And it is sad, but on the other hand, this is an opportunity. I mean, if you're listening to the podcast. I mean, Lily's mentioned, we'll link to some books maybe you might want to go and try so you can experience McKillop's work. And also, this is a time to go back and, I mean, I get caught constantly a torrent of, of new books. It's always like this new book, that new book, that new book. And the chance to go back and read something that you read 20 years ago doesn't seem to come around. And this is the point where you go back and touch, you know, sort of touch base again and go, I remember why I loved that. I, I remember that. You talk to other people. It's how you help keep the, 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 her, her work alive because it is how she stays in the world now, right? You know, by, by uh, being read and being talked about. And I mean, I genuinely hope, and I think you alluded to this maybe on social media, Ellen, that when it comes time for the World Fantasy Convention, which I don't think I'll get to in November in New Orleans, that they take a moment to remember and talk about and focus on on Pat's work because it's it's a very significant body of work and one which is obviously at different times for different reasons moved all of us. But with that, <laughs>
You should probably yeah. let Ellen go to France. We should let Ellen go. Uh, to I will France. ask you to hang on for one second after I do, and we should look forward to it. Lily, will you be in Chicago? I believe so. Excellent. The well, world is just that. so much in flux. It's it would be lovely. Are you coming all the way across the world for us? I am. I I'll see. be in Chicago. And it's not impossible that we'll be in uh, New York. And in fact, it's not impossible that my youngest will be in New York. So we'll see what happens. But oh, I'm, I'm really Maybe sorry that it took some... Yeah, Sophie, yeah, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Where? Do you know? Well, uh, she's not there yet, but I think she's talking about coming to, coming to Manhattan for a while. Yeah. But, so but I'll, to, I'll, to go to school? Oh, tell me later. No, no, no. <laughs> not, not to go to school. Just, just to, to sort of to be a tourist for a while. Oh, 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 okay. All right. No, I thought she was going to Columbia. Or yeah, something. not moving. I do moving have to say, in my own, as it were, defense, I, I, because I lived in France when I was a kid, and so I speak a, like a very good nine-year-old's French. I have a whole relationship there with the other French writers and with the publishing industry, mm. and they're bringing out my books, and they love the fact that I will do an interview in French. So that's mm. one reason that my heart is is so much there, and that I'm going over to do a couple of conventions because the book is. Um, you know, it's coming out in French now. And so it's Wonderful. just the other half of it. So if you ever want to hear about French, the French world of SFNF, it's very, very rich and very lively. I'm okay. sure we will. But for the moment, we'll ask you all to hang on for just a minute after we finish. But for the moment, Ellen Kushner, E. Lily, you, thank you so much for making time to talk to us today. We genuinely appreciate it. In honor of Patricia McKillop, this has been the Coop Street Podcast. <laughs>